I'm Phil Rickaby, and I've been a writer and performer for almost 30 years. But I've realized that I don't really know as much as I should about the theater scene outside of my particular Toronto bubble. Now, I'm on a quest to learn as much as I can about the theater scene across Canada. So join me as I talk with mainstream theater creators you may have heard of, and indie artists you really should know, as we find out just what it takes to be stage-worthy. If you value the work that I do on Stageworthy, please consider leaving a donation either as a one-time thing or on a recurring monthly basis. Stageworthy is created entirely by me, and I give it to you free of charge with no advertising or other sponsored messages. Your continuing support helps me to cover the cost of producing and distributing the show. Just four people donating $5 a month would help me cover the cost of podcast hosting alone. Help me continue to bring you this podcast. You can find a link to donate in the show notes, which you can find in your podcast app or at the website at stageworthy.ca. Now, on to the show. Taylor Marie Graham is an award-winning playwright, librettist, director, theater scholar, and educator from Cambridge, Ontario. She joined me to talk about her play Corporate Finch, which rounds out a summer of performances with a run at Impact Fest in Kitchener, Ontario. In this conversation, we talk about the unusual origin of Corporate Finch, taking the play to festivals around Ontario, and how her academic practice and her artistic practice complement each other. Here's our conversation. Just to jump in, I did not get a chance during Fringe to see Corporate Finch. Um, okay. <laughs> I am only human. I'm not Derek Tua. Um, mm-hmm. I can only see so many shows. Uh, so I didn't get to see... Same. <laughs> who, yeah. who else? Who can? Um, yeah. So I didn't get to see Corporate Finch. Could you tell me about this play? Sure. So essentially, it's a story about two teenagers breaking into an old abandoned factory and it's a thriller, you know, there's push and pull. It's unclear sort of who's maybe the monster. If you want to say there's a monster and who isn't right. There's this push and pull between the two of them. Um, And essentially it's, you know, good old psychological thriller where you're not really sure, you know, (laughs) who to believe, which whose side you're on, hopefully. And then, uh, yeah, you know, we play with light and sound and all that good stuff. And, um, yeah, it's essentially a two-hander. Two teenagers go into a factory. We're not really sure if they'll both make it out alive. Ooh. (laughs) (laughs) If they'll both make it out alive, that's something. Um, Now, of course, I mean, that's that's high drama right there. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Is are they just do they just go in like for shits and giggles or is there something that they're going in to this abandoned factory to do? Yeah, I mean they've they've been friends for a very long time. I should say it's set in St. Jacobs, Ontario, um, and so it's you know really set in a specific community, um, which I like to do with a lot of stuff I write, uh, and essentially it's we're we're going into this place 
that one of the characters, Finch, has been living in for a while. And about a year before, um, she was kicked out of her school. And Jake, who's the other character, is involved in why she was sort of uh, released from the school and all the drama that kind of went around that. And so this is the first time they're getting together again. And Finch is bringing him to her, her, you know, where she's been living for the last little while. Um, and they're going to they're gonna deal with some stuff, <laughs> deal with some old wounds. Cool. Um, now, just there's a little notice that your your uh, your your network is struggling, um, and you are roboting a little bit. I'm going to ask. We're both. Oh. How about we both turn off our cameras just to save the bandwidth? Okay. So just like click the little icon, sure. the camera icon, and we will both disappear from view. But that should help with the network. Um, okay. Did that help? Uh, we will find out, but it should have. It should have because video is is pretty network. <laughs> okay. uh, uh, do these two have a history? Is it a romantic history? Do they have stuff they need to work out. Is that what brings them together, or, or what? What is the? What is this? This this thing between them? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, these two these two particular characters have a lot of really strong chemistry that they've had since they were children, and I don't necessarily mean you know, sexual chemistry, although that's definitely there, but there's just like this, this connection between these two. They've always sort of had this connection between each other, been drawn to each other their entire lives. They sort of get each other in ways that they feel like the rest of the world doesn't. Um, and so they're always drawn to each other, even though they're very different people and come from very different backgrounds. And so when there's this big event that happens um, when they're, you know, I, but a year before this play starts and they're ripped apart, essentially, there's this huge traumatic event that happens that's sort of revealed through the play um, that they sort of, they're, they're ripped apart and this is them coming back together. They see each other at a party and this is the first time they've seen each other since that big, huge blowout. And this is the first time that they've spent that much time away from each other, too, since they were children, essentially. So this is them coming back together, kind of remembering what it's like to be with that other person, what it's like to, to be around that other person, what that chemistry is, is and that sort of undeniable connection and that memory of that and while also dealing with the big event that happened that ripped apart. Right. It's funny how with, with there are certain people I've had this in my life. There are certain people who you will not see them for a long time. And then you, you run into them and somehow does like, it's like no time passed. Yeah. And it sounds like yeah, these two are like that. that. Yeah. I've had that with a lot of people in my life, you know, I've had this, I've had this sense of, um, there are certain people where it's just this, you know, you kind of see the same thing going on in a room that maybe other people aren't clocking or, you know, you're able to kind of see the humor of a situation that, um, they, you didn't realize that somebody else in the room kind of sees too. So, I love those kind of relationships. And yeah, I actually had that this summer where I reconnected with somebody who I haven't really spent a lot of time with 
um, probably in the last five years. And it was great. We just reconnected again, laughing, joking. There was like this, um, you know, this undeniable, oh yeah, I forgot. You will see this situation the way that I see it. And isn't that hilarious? And isn't it great that we both understand the ridiculousness of this particular time of the world and the place that we're in and we can connect on that level. Now you've, this show has had quite a summer. I mean, Toronto fringe, uh, the here for now, the here for now theater festival in Stratford fringe North. Um, have you been traveling with the show? I have. Yeah. Yeah. It's been, it's been a really busy summer. Yeah. With corporate Finch for sure. Um, yeah, <laughs> we well, we kind of we first started together last um, December, and that's where I met the the two actors who uh, came out to audition for me. So Rainbow Kester and Matthew Ivanoff, who are just really talented, and I thought they were really cool. And um, so they were part of this workshop that we did at this. Uh, it's called the Unhinge Festival in Kitchener. It's this creepy. Um, this creepy festival there dedicated to creepy things. And, uh, and yeah, well, we were doing it. I went, you know, I really like these two actors. They're kind of just finishing their degree. They're both were going to, they're both at the university of Guelph at the time. And I kind of thought, you know, I do, I see a potential for them to, you know, have some more, um, opportunities to perform and, and so, yeah, we just sort of built this <laughs> this little tour this summer that, yeah, it was busy. We went to the Toronto Fringe, um, had, I think there was eight performances there, and then we had three performances. Well, actually two out here for now because one got, there was this huge thunderstorm and it, it got rained out, Ooh. which kind of gave us a bit of street cred because we brought some creepy to <laughs> Stratford. And then... Um, yeah, then we were up in Sault Ste. Marie uh, for the for two performances there. And it was really cool to kind of try to use each space and use it to its advantage and try to make it as site-specific as possible to each place. That was really fun. To me, that's one of the fun things about about uh, any like any like going to multiple fringe festivals is you have to negotiate completely different spaces each time. You have to be flexible. You have to figure out stuff on the fly. Like, how are we going to do this in this space? Um, now, the play itself, was it, you know, you mentioned it sort of being as site-specific as possible. Um, how does that reflect? Because, you know, if you're in the Toronto Fringe, it's pretty relegated to, like, on the stage. But how is it site-specific? Can you describe that for me? Sure. Yeah. Um well, as soon as I found out that we we're going to be um, in the Toronto Fringe, I really wanted to make sure we were at theater past my backspace. This is one of my favorite spots in Toronto. I I love seeing plays there. Um, I just think it's a really cool little space, and it can just it lends itself to creepy very well. Um, and yeah, so I've always kind of wished to do something there, and I love that there's this balcony that sort of hangs over the audience on on the right-hand side. And so in my mind, I went, okay, 
I want there to be, um, you know, there's a, there's always been sort of a crash in entrance in this play. So I thought, okay, well, why don't we make the crash in the window that's at the top of that balcony? So it actually seems like they're like descending into <laughs> this old factory. So um, yeah, that was one thing that uh, I changed in the script at the very beginning. They were always kind of coming through a window, but we played with this this long balcony and played with sort of the space of that balcony and made it really specific and made sort of sounds. And I liked that the audience couldn't really see them. They could only hear them. So it starts with like this big crash and you can only really hear them laughing with each other and joking around as they're kind of moving into this space and they have to go down the stairs before they go into uh, onto the stage. So there's a good chunk at the beginning of the play that actually uh, it doesn't even happen on the stage. It's on that balcony upstairs. I find that balcony is one of the the jewels of that particular space. Yeah. And I think it's rarely used, but it it should be used by everybody. I think it's I think it's a, a magical thing to add and un- unexpected in a, in a piece. Yeah. Yeah, it was really fun to try to imagine, you know, how are we going to get everybody's um, attention, <laughs> you know, right at the very top? I want to give everybody a little bit of a little bit of a jump scare at the beginning, because why not? We're trying to do a horror here. So kind of bringing people into that, you know, crash landing above them was really fun. That space is also extremely intimate. There's really no yeah. space at all between audience and performer. Um, how does that add to a play like this, the, the, the proximity of the audience? Yeah. Um, I, I'm really glad that we, all all the spaces that we were in, we were really close to the audience. The audience was right there with the actors because, you know, Rainbow and Matt are so lovely and talented and we spent a lot of time on character work and just digging in and trying to find all the layers of complexity of the relationship that exists between them and that relationship you know I'm sure you know as you know with friends and and people that you know really well sometimes it's really subtle right those those switches and changes between people and the way that you kind of look at somebody can mean a lot if you've known somebody for a long time. So the fact that the audience got to be right up close with them to experience that and we kind of really played with that intimacy, that was really fun. Um, and the other thing we got to do, uh, so there are these two monologues that um, the Finch character, so Rainbow, delivers to the audience and she ought to get really <laughs> close to the audience and kind of give them that experience of they're not really sure what side they're on. They don't know who to believe in this situation. They don't know if they should, um, you know, empathize with her or if she's the one who's causing um, the sort of distress that's happening in, in this situation. And so playing with that intimacy was also really fun with the form too. Hmm. Now, you alerted uh, as we were sort of like broaching the topic of this play about about the writing of this play. Uh, so tell me about what was the initial inspiration uh, for Corporate Finch? Yeah. OK, so I'm going to tell you the story. <laughs> so last summer, so summer 2022, 
I got to go to Scotland for a month. I was on a playwright residency at the Life Arts Centre in Caithness, Scotland. And it was as dreamy as that sounds. It was really beautiful. The people there are incredible. They showed me around. And I was working on this other play while I was there. And it's more, um, I guess, you know, in my my wheelhouse <laughs> plays. It's it's about complicated uh, women kind of examining what does it mean to be uh, rural and, you know, environmental science and asking those kind of questions. And I was really, I was loving it. I was there. I was writing this play and I got home and I had the worst case of writer's block that I've ever had. And, um, you know, I, I, I was one of those people that didn't really think writer's block was real. It's not that I've never really not been able to write before, but it was like I couldn't even look at a page. I couldn't even, you know, I couldn't deal with the idea of writing at all. And it really freaked me out. So <laughs> I, um, I, a, f- a friend of mine told me about this local organization, Flushing Performing Arts, who I hadn't had the chance of uh, working with yet. And they do this thing where they take playwrights and they t- bring them to really creepy places, leave them there for 22 hours. It's a 22-hour writing competition. And you you just have to write something. And I'm like, oh, you know what? That sounds like something that might get me out of my own way. You know, it might help me um, not worry so much about really trying to deliver. And there's, you know, no stakes. I can just go um, and try to write in a form I haven't written in before. So in horror and really kind of embrace that and try to see what happens. So I show up at um, this woman, Patty um, Gillard Bentley's house. And this is the first time I've ever met this woman. And I didn't really realize at the time that she was doing this to help with the creepy experience. But she just sort of says to me, okay, get in your car and uh, follow me. And so I was following her and we were driving out into the middle of the country for about 20 minutes. And I was genuinely, Phil, I was genuinely getting creeped out. And so as we were driving, I was thinking to myself, I could just turn around. I could just go home. I don't have to go wherever this woman is <laughs> that I don't know, <laughs> wherever she's leading me. Um, and then we got to this old factory in St. Jacob's, Ontario. And she gave me this you know, bag of snacks, um, Halloween treats mostly, and said, okay, good luck. And um, yeah, so I, I went into this old factory and I sat down and I said, well, I'm here. Okay, let's see sort of what happens. And I just started to imagine these two uh, teenagers breaking in. And so the whole night I just sat down and I'm like, you know what, let's see if you can actually start and finish something. And I did. And I was pretty, uh, I was really proud of myself. I started the piece and finished it. Um, about 6 p.m. the next day. And I was just sort of imagining, you know, this push and pull between these two characters. Um, I did some research. I was listening to Mennonite church hymns in the middle of the night because there's a lot of uh, Mennonite that live around in, the, in that area. So I was listening to that in the middle of the night too, really creeping myself out. <laughs> 
by listening to these church hymns in the middle of the night and that sort of filtered its way in as well. And um, yeah, so that's, that's how it came to be. That is how <laughs> the corporate Finch was written. Okay. I have questions. Um, <laughs> first off, were you alone in this foundry? I was. I don't know if I could, yeah. do, I don't know if I could do that. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> there's something I'd be fine if there's like a few other people, I think, but but to be sort of dropped off alone in this in this space. I mean, I get that that's the point, but there's something about something about that that is like over the edge for me. How, I mean, you didn't even know where you were going, so how was that for you? Yeah, it was it was scary. <laughs> and, but there was something kind of in that exhilaration, in that fear that was maybe really present. Right. I couldn't really think about anything else but me and that space and what I was trying to write. And there were other people involved, but they were in different spaces. So I think somebody was brought to an attic. Um, another person was brought to a church, I think. Um, we kind of, before we got there, Patty asked what some of our fears were. And so I think she was trying to feed off of <laughs> those fears uh. and bringing us <laughs> to, to these creepy places. Uh. But yeah, it was, it was unpleasant, but it, it helped. It worked. Obviously. Obviously. Um, now, of course, I, I, I try to picture that like, you don't know this woman as she's driving no. you into the middle of nowhere. No. Uh, at some point, were you thinking I should have checked the references for these people? Like, was it did that cross your mind? Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. I had, <laughs> had some moments where I went, "Okay, I really hope this woman is the person I'm supposed to meet." Right? <laughs> this isn't <laughs> somebody else who's just like decided that they're going to play a trick on me or something. But, um, but yeah, no, I think it's a pretty it's a pretty cool project that Patty does where she. She really tries to get writers to embrace their fears and sees, you know, what comes up and 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 how that manifests on the page. And so, um, I think there were two, yeah, two other productions in mind. Um, you know, they they ended up producing them at the uh, at the Unhinged Festival. It was pretty neat to see some of the other shows. There was one sort of this. Um, I, I guess I don't I guess I would call it a meditation on motherhood and loss. And it was just clearly somebody, you know, imagining the worst things possible that, you know, could happen and just embracing it and and trying to explore that idea. And yeah, it was really creepy. And there was another that was really playing with the light and sound in really interesting ways. Um, and really asking us to think about authority and whose authority. And yeah, it was just great to see sort of what fell out <laughs> while people mm. were, you know, creeped out in the dark all night. <laughs> <laughs> you got to do something. Um, now, you said that you finished at like 6, 6 p.m.? Yeah. When you're done yeah. and it's supposed to yeah. be a 22 hour thing, do you get to yeah. call a number and somebody's going to come and get you? Or are you still waiting for the time to be up? <laughs> I, yeah, I, I sent, I had my computer, so I, you know, didn't, I wasn't left there without, <laughs> without anything on the computer. <laughs> so I sent it off, you know, I emailed, um, I emailed Patty with the draft and then, uh, yeah. And then she said, okay, you can come, um, and meet me here. And I actually really tired because mm. I hadn't really slept at all, went and chatted with her for a while after on her front porch 
and uh, just sort of listen to her talk about um, the work that she's done in the Waterloo region mm. and and her relationship to theater, which was really kind of a neat moment in, in itself. It's really, I, I love talking to people about um, their relationship to theater and sort of what they think is important and why they do it. Mm. And um, so, yeah, that, that in itself was actually really cool. Yeah. Now, you mentioned um, that uh, Corporate Finch is a little different from the things that you would normally write. Yes. What do you usually gravitate to? Um, well, I guess, you know, the stuff that I write is usually kind of troubling, but isn't necessarily um, the form itself. I'm not usually playing with the form to try to scare people. Um, but the stuff I usually write, I mean, Post Alice, uh, which was produced in uh, 2021 by Here For Now, Um that's a story where I take four of my favorite Alice Monroe protagonists and I put them in a new narrative and um, and also combine it with my own sort of understanding of Huron County where I grew up. And yeah, it's a story about these four women sort of reconnecting um, and, you know, dealing with, um, with their past and, and who they are today and kind of thinking also about um, a girl who went missing from the Goddard region in the mid nineties named Misty Murray. So there's also that true story kind of uh, weaving its way in there uh, too. Yeah. I, you know, I, um, I really love to, to explore themes about women and complications of what it means to be um, a rural woman and, and also asking questions about like, identity and what is sort of Canadian and what is not. And I like to ask those kind of questions and whatever. Hmm. Uh, how did it feel to write something that wasn't all of that? Was it like, <laughs> I mean, obviously the, you were drawn to it because of the location, but um, after the play is done, you're still going to work on it for a while. How did it feel to sort of like be out of that wheelhouse? Yeah, it was really fun to play with a genre and like, try to see if it can work you know it's <laughs> doing horror on stage is really hard and so just trying to kind of play with the conventions of that see you know where you can push it where you can kind of ask questions ask the audience to play along in different ways it was it was really fun it was very challenging um but it's also, you know, it's funny how similar <laughs> that play is to some of my other plays in, in some ways, because it's still rooted in southwestern Ontario, right? It's still St. Jacob's. And it's the, the protagonist, I mean, the both characters are, you know, it's a two-handers and they're both on stage the whole time. Um, but the the Finch character, you know, she her character is quite complicated. Um, she's dealing with a lot. So it's definitely a complicated woman um, or young woman. Um, but yeah, I, you know, what's really cool to me about horror are these sort of expectations of horror are these um, ideas of what it's supposed to be and what it's supposed to look like. And you can kind of play with that and push against it um, and see what happens. So that was really, I really liked doing that. That was a lot of fun. You mentioned um, uh, horror being rarely done on stage, which I think is 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 a shame. Yeah, because 
with a live audience, there's so much more potential to unnerve. Um, because in that way that theater is more visceral because you're in the room, you know, like a fight scene is more exciting on stage than it is, uh, on in a movie because that's in a room, real people are swinging their arms. Um, people, if you, if somebody gets slapped on stage in a show, like in, in a play, the audience always reacts in a movie, not so much. It's so visceral having the people in the room that horror can just gives you so so much opportunity to just unnerve in a way that I don't even think a movie can. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And I think there's something to the production of theater that you can you can really ask those types of questions to you know, light and sound can do so much to kind of play with your emotions and the way you feel. It was it was really kind of interesting to try to you know the cover finch starts in black and we have this long sound cue before the show starts and in that sound cue right you're forcing your audience to just sit there and sort of live with the darkness and the sound and and forcing them to sort of be in that present moment um and it's really like I think it's really interesting what you can do. And I think a lot of, um, you know, the, the people that sort of created ghost theater or different versions of um, paranormal sort of theater that existed, um, you know, in the early um, 20th century, I think a, a lot of what they're doing too is quite interesting, right? They're playing with those ideas of, who's in the room and ghosts on stage, which so many plays do, but this is so overt, right? You're, you're really asking your audience to engage with this idea that we're not just here alone and <laughs> there's other people among us and it's not on a screen. It's not in another place. It's in this room with us right now. And yeah, so I do think there's so much potential um, for theater to really explore all of those really, you know, difficult emotions um, and ask you to kind of be really present with them in a way that, yeah, I don't, I don't know, can exist um, on a screen. Yeah. I mean, the it, it's so hard on a screen because everybody knows they're safe, right? That the, the, yeah. the, nothing is coming out of that screen. I, yeah. I'm reminded that, you know, in before film, we would go to the theater for horror. Ja- Dr. Jekyll and, and Mr. Hyde was a, was a horrific play for the audience at the time. Dracula was a play that, that, that caused audience members to faint at the time. Um, yeah. That's where we went for theater. And then when we started doing it on film, we sort of I somehow thought, I guess we can't do that anymore when we're so missing the opportunity in, in, in some cases. And there are some theater companies that, 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 that are playing with that. Um, and I, I think that it's great to see that kind of genre on stage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. And um, I think that there's <laughs> there's something really interesting about um, fear too, right? I I don't always love actually watching a horror movie. I don't always, you know, that experience is really difficult for me sometimes. But just forcing yourself to appreciate sort of the 
the construction of it and sitting back and sort of playing with the construction of horror, that's really fun for me. And I think a lot of horror lovers do this. Mm. I think a lot of horror lovers really like to enjoy knowing that they're watching a horror and that it's trying to trick them Mm -hmm. and that they're kind of trying to figure it out. So trying to be a step ahead. Um, That's a fun thing to do. Mm. (laughs) My, uh, my girlfriend uh, loves horror. I do not on film. Um, Yeah. I love writing it. I'm not so, I'm not so great at watching movies about it or horror movies, but she sort of says she approaches those movies as sort of like, can you scare me? Like she's sort of like, I've seen a lot mm-hmm. of shit. Can you scare me? And uh, there are very few that do, but she just loves the 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 attempt, I think. Yeah, my partner is the exact same way. He'll watch something and he'll <laughs> he'll wait to see, okay, is this going to get me right at the beginning? Are they going to try to really um, force me into an uncomfortable place at the beginning and is it going to work and if it doesn't then i'm not buying it it's really kind of fun to watch horrors with him (laughs) (laughs) i have i have the thing that'll get me every time the mirror scare oh yeah you know doesn't matter yeah doesn't matter and i always like tense whenever if even if it's not a horror movie somebody goes to the bathroom and they're 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 you know brushing their teeth or something and they open the cat the 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 medicine cabinet and they close yeah. it there's a part of me that always flinches just because i think there's going to be something behind them <laughs> yeah i know that feeling yeah um the i think the one that usually gets me is you're walking somewhere and it's suddenly just dark everywhere so there's a sense of you're just not sure if there's something out there that you haven't clocked right that's the, that's the one that gets me every time yeah yeah <laughs> Now you are currently teaching a theater course at Western. Yep. What what what's the topic of the of the of the course? Uh, we're, it's called Toronto Performance and Culture. So um, it's a fun class. We're going to Toronto three times. We're going to see three different productions. Um, and you know, I'm talking about sort of the history of theater in Toronto and asking questions about uh, representation, identity, really exploring. Um, how mandates in of the Toronto theater companies have changed throughout time. Um, and yeah. And so the students, we're going to go see some stuff. We're going to talk about it. Um, we just had our first, our first class last week. So we're just getting started. Do you, uh, do you talk about uh, how the theater scene in Toronto differs from other places or is it just like, this is what the scene is in Toronto? Yeah, I mean, there's there's some of that for sure. I think, I think, in a lot of ways, I'm really interested in questions of, you know, what something, um, how how a theater is trying to fulfill the idea of what they think their audience wants. So it's also asking questions about like who is Toronto. What does Toronto expect to see? Um, and what communities do certain theaters expect to connect with? And what are their expectations when it comes to different productions? But yeah, actually, next third on Thursday, we're going to start talking about uh, the 70s in Toronto and asking questions about, you know, this idea that they had then of we're going to make this the, the Canada Broadway and what that might mean 
or, you know, what traditions are you kind of pulling from and which ones are not visible, which ones aren't necessarily represented on stages? When did those start to become more visible and what was that transition like? Um, and what is on stages today? Very different. Very different. It's the, they're, 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, you were talking about the, you know, the theaters and who their audience is and who they're, they're wanting to connect with. And sometimes I think that ultimately who they want to connect with can be at odds with the subscriber base. Sometimes, Which yeah. is an interesting question and something diff- that's interesting to try to navigate is, is, you know, we want to bring in this, this, a more diverse audience, but well, how does that affect our existing uh, subscriber base? And uh, what is the effect of, of doing that? And I think that can be a fraught discussion in some companies. Yeah, I think there's also an idea of sort of who the subscriber is too that might need some dissecting. Obviously, there are people that can afford a subscription. So that's mm-hmm. something that they all are. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. But I but I do think that, you know, there's there's audiences. Um there's there's audiences that go and see that have been going to see shows uh in Toronto and other places all you know throughout Ontario that have continually been challenged and been asked to challenge their perception of themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, their perception of their communities that they live in. And I actually think that a lot of audiences um, in Toronto are game for that, Mm. are excited by that. It's something they've been conditioned to do. Mm. Um, And yeah, there are certain shows that definitely ask them to push against maybe past perceptions of who that theater is. Mm. And so that might ask, you know, get them to, re-examine their relationship to the theater but honestly i i think it's pretty amazing that people will subscribe to a theater they will decide that they're going to be a part of that community Mm -hmm. and that they're you know willing to invest in that organization and try to see where it's going and where it's growing Mm -hmm. yeah i mean from that point of view absolutely absolutely and i think that uh a lot of theaters are are working to uh uh fight against the idea that their subscriber base is old and that that's who mm-hmm. they're appealing to. Um, yeah. Cause that is the, that is a perception in some corners that, that subscribers are old white and rich. Mm-hmm. And that definitely exists. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. A big group of people that go and see theater. Um, but I do think within that group, there's a lot of complications too. Sure. Right. Yeah. There's a lot of, you know, um, and then also hopefully, it's becoming a lot more, you know, the, the theater companies and the work that they're doing right now, there's more open arms. Um, people are feeling more welcomed from other communities right? Yeah. to join in. Yeah. Yeah. Now you are someone who works both as an artist and in academia. And I'm curious about how that particular journey started for you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've always kind of been one of those people that I read something or I engage with questions um, about, you know, something that's going on in the world right now, something topical maybe. And I want to write about it and I want to, you know, explore it on my own creative writing and then vice versa. 
things that I'm writing about in my creative writing that I'm exploring, that I'm trying to figure out that I'm, that I'm, you know, navigating, um, as I'm doing that, I'm thinking about other academic projects that I could do that could help support some of the questions or ideas that I have. Um, an example that I have of this is at the very beginning of the pandemic, I joined a online Alice Munro um, reading group. So it was mostly academics, but it was people from all different kinds of professions and walks of life. And essentially we started um, with Alice Munro's most recent book um, and just worked our way through her catalog, essentially. And we're still going. That's how prolific Alice Munro is, by the way. And so we've just been reading these stories week by week. And as I've been reading them, you know, they were washing over me and they were, I have grew up in Heron County. So Alice Monroe has always been a huge sort of figure in my life because that's where she's from. Um, but I think reading these stories and hearing other people talk about them and sort of examining them in a more, um, you know, academic context, I guess, I started to think about the play that I was I was interested in writing. So Post Alice, which then takes four protagonists and puts them in different situations. And um, so then that's sort of how I developed that play. And then as I was developing that play, um, the story of Misty Marie was interesting to me. And I was learning more about the fact that uh, some of her family are Mi'kmaq, some of her biological family. And so I wanted to um, work with asking questions about how that story wasn't told when she first went missing in the 90s. And so I worked with um, a non-status Algonquin creator, Tara Chartrand, and we, you know, she helped me through that writing process. And then we ended up writing an article sort of about us collaborating together and developing um, the story together. So then it, then I could share that with an academic community. So I always like sort of having both of those those sides to myself. I think it's really, it's just kind of hard to me. <laughs> I like having both the provocations that, you know, theory and um, the academic world sort of brings up for me. Um, things that are difficult, things that are um, not easy questions, and then exploring those in my creative writing that then get me to ask more questions that then drive my academic work. So yeah, they both, you know, I think I realized more recently that it's okay, <laughs> that they both exist at the same time. And I can, I can embrace it and just realize that's just part of my process. That's just part of who I am. And I need both sides for either one to, to do, to serve, to do well for me to do well in either realm. Hmm. Now you are finishing up a PhD in theater yeah. and a PhD yes, is no mean feat. No, no, it's, it's a lot of work. <laughs> um, what if, what's, I mean, do you have a particular focus for your PhD? Yeah. I'm looking at the Blythe festival. Mm. Yeah. And I'm, uh, essentially tracking equity milestones um, of the festival. So it's, it's part history. It's 
part uh, post-colonial examination of the theater. Um, and then sort of looking at really specific moments and asking questions about how that moment um, impacts the, the history of the theater as a whole. Um, yeah, it's, you know, I ha- I still have a whole wall <laughs> of bankers boxes in this office that I'm sitting in right now. Um, the Blythe has graciously given me all of their, their archives, the ones that aren't at the University of Guelph archives, which is about to the mid nineties. So I have from about the mid nineties to today, uh, living in my house right now. It's been a lot of work of, you know, examining these archives and pulling out specific moments that I want to examine. Um, so in, a lot, in some ways, this dissertation is, you know, really deciding what not to focus on. There's so much mm. that you can write about because the theater has been around since the mid 70s. Um, so, yeah, I'm I'm looking at um, sort of s- six really key moments and I wish I could look at the rest, but that's what I'm doing. How do you make that decision? <laughs> Given that there is so much in the history yeah. of the Blythe Festival, uh, yeah, how do you choose what you want to focus on? Yeah, it's been a it's been a <laughs> real process of making that decision. Um, it's hard, you know. I don't I don't know if I have an answer as to how I <laughs> made that decision. Um, but essentially, you know, like it's always going to be through my lens, so it's always going to be the ones that. I think have really made an, a, a huge impact on the way that Blythe operates and, and the representations of who Canada is according to Blythe. And, and those moments where I see significant shifts um, or, you know, there's, there's representation that hasn't existed before on that stage. Um, those are ones that I gravitated towards uh, to really focus on because there's, there is. There's so there's been so many plays, you know, full summer seasons um, since 1975, except for when the pandemic happened. So there's all of these productions. So yeah, it was. It's also been really lovely to just sit with a lot of these plays because not all of them have been published either. So going through each one and reading it, and and you know, going back to that question you asked earlier about having both an academic. And a creative side, even that in itself, just reading all of those plays has, I feel like that's obviously (laughs) made a huge impact on me as a playwright too, right? Getting to engage with all of these plays and the way that they're constructed and ask questions about, you know, um, what they're trying to say, how they're doing it and, and how the characters are interacting and, and what's important to that playwright and why, and all of that has been, um, been part of the process you know it never occurred to me that there would have been plays that were produced at a major festival in this country that haven't been published oh so many yeah it's only a few publishers really important publishers obviously um playwrights can press and talent books and um shiroko drama are the ones right now essentially um, but yeah, there's so there are so many plays that are just living in the archives going back to Alice Monroe they uh, did a version of Alice Monroe in year two of the festival. Um, 
And that play has never been published, which is kind of amazing to me. A woman who (laughs) won the Nobel Prize and um, How I Met My Husband, her play that was adapted, you know, in the second year of the festival still just sits in the archives. I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm speechless because I I think, (laughs) I think in my mind, uh, I think of other places that are not Canada where it feels like there's more that gets published. If something goes on stage and it's in a major festival, it's going to be published at some time. That's how it feels like to me. And then to have these major new plays in Canada that somebody who didn't see that play will never Mm -hmm. see is tragic to me. I hear you. Me too. Me too. You know, it's <laughs> in a lot of ways, the only, it's, it's beautiful, right? That the only way it exists is in this live form, but it's also tragic because it's, there's no way. Because also, you know, Blythe, because of where it is, because of its, um, you know, it's a, a bit of a drive, right, from Toronto to to get out to Blythe, there hasn't always been um, a lot of critical reception in that part of southwestern Ontario, too. So people writing about the plays at Blythe, right, there, there isn't actually a lot written mm. about Blythe as well, right? Yeah, yeah, it is. You know, it's it's trying to... to better understand what hasn't been written about. Yeah. And it's, you know, the idea that, you know, yes, it is, it is, you know, theater is, is something that exists in the moment um, and and it needs to be seen, but for somebody to then pick up that play and give it another production. Yeah. It needs to be, somebody needs to discover it. Somebody needs to read it. It has to be published for somebody to stumble across and say, I love this play enough to do it again. Yeah. How is somebody in, I don't know, Dubai is supposed to find it or, or I don't or, know. Or, some or, th- or even Saskatchewan. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. How like it could have a life, yeah. right? It is a, it is a written document for the most part, unless it's kind of a more collected yeah. piece, but still a lot of theater companies have found some really inventive ways to document that and mm-hmm. to, to put it together on the page. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating dissertation. Um, how m- <laughs> I mean, dare I ask how much time you have in your PhD? I'm as close to the end as you can be. I think they'll kick me out soon. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I wish I was joking, but yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm at the very, I'm at the very end. Well, yeah. I, I, I definitely wish you uh, uh, lots of coffee and uh, thanks. <laughs> To, to get through the dissertation um and, and just to just to the 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 corporate finch will be mm-hmm. um at the impact festival in kitchener returning yeah. returning to kitchener at almost you know less than a year but like almost a year later at the impact festival on september the 29th and 30th yeah i'm so looking forward to this whole festival the impact festival this year looks incredible they have shows coming from a lot of different places all over the world. Um, I I got to be part of the Impact Festival in 2019, and I saw so many productions that really, um, you know, taught me something about myself. I saw a mall by Empty Space there, and, um, you know, they bring in all these productions from all over the world. Mm. And so I'm really 
I'm really feeling lucky these days to get to be a part of that. That's a pretty cool thing. That's awesome. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. I hope you have. I hope that, that this this summer of corporate Finch uh, uh, <laughs> ends with, on a high note, and that you have a, 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 a that you look back on the on on the summer with as a as like the beginning of something, which is I, I think we all should. <laughs> Yeah, no, me too. I should say that uh, Rainbow Kester, who has been our uh, steady finch throughout the whole summer, um, she's just started at National Theatre School. So very proud of Rainbow getting into National Theatre School. And for the uh, Impact Festival version of Corporate Finch, we have Lucy Sanchi, who's stepping in. And she was actually in... um, Frog Song, which is a children's opera that I wrote that was produced this summer. And so I met Lucy there. And I'm really, really excited to see Lucy's version of Finch 2. I think um, getting to have two different actors play this role for me is really exciting. That is always one of the exciting things when you get to see somebody else play a role that you know so well. And and, yeah. and see what they're going to bring to it. That, that To me, that's one of the more exciting things about, like, I don't know, like going to see a show and finding out that the understudy is on. Some people get disappointed and I'm always like, Ooh, what's this one going to be like? Yeah, me too. Me too. I get like that too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think it's going to be fun. Um, Lucy and I are going to start working together uh, at the end of this week and start digging in and sort of seeing, um, you know, trying to give her the space to to make the character her own. And then we're going to start working, you know, Lucy and Matt, put them together and see what happens. <laughs> That's an, That sounds exciting. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think it'll be fun for yeah. Matt too, to sort of see what it's like to play with two different actors. Absolutely. Too. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Taylor, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. And uh, it's been a wonderful conversation. Thanks for joining me. Thanks so much. This has been an episode of Stageworthy. Stageworthy is produced, hosted, and edited by Phil Rickaby. That's me. If you enjoyed this podcast and you listen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you can leave a five-star rating. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, you can also leave a review. Those reviews and ratings help new people find the show. If you want to keep up with what's going on with Stageworthy and my other projects, you can subscribe to my newsletter by going to philrickaby.com slash subscribe. And remember, if you want to leave a tip, you'll find a link to the virtual tip jar in the show notes or on the website. You can find Stageworthy on Twitter and Instagram at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website with the complete archive of all episodes at stageworthy.ca. If you want to find me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Phil Rickaby. And as I mentioned, my website is philrickaby.com. See you next week for another episode of Stageworthy. Stageworthy.